Hello and welcome to the Function Health Podcast. My name is Sean Strayer, and together with my co-host Ryan Beck, we aim to deliver the best content in health, longevity, medical education, and scientific career development. In this podcast, we'll be discussing a topic near and dear to both of our hearts, which is ketogenic-based metabolic strategies. Most importantly, the ketogenic diet. We'll be covering the science behind the various benefits of the diet, how to implement it, and what side effects one might experience. With that being said, the best place to start, Ryan, is a general definition of the ketogenic diet, if you could provide that for us. The classic ketogenic diet is classified as one with very low carbohydrates, high fats, and moderate proteins. We're going down to 20 to 50 grams a day on the carbohydrate range. Which is just mind-blowing for most people because before we started our foray into ketosis, we were probably consuming upwards of 200 grams of carbohydrates a day, no problem. So one of the things about the ketogenic diet is that it's for some reason controversial. And I think I have an understanding of why it might be controversial for some people, but I'm just curious, when did you first hear about the diet and what did you first think about it? You know, I would go as far as to say I would eat up to 400 grams of carbohydrates a day before all this. Um, but I first heard about this years ago, and I just thought it was another one of those fad diets that had no clinical significance to it. Uh, but my interest really did peak probably approximately about a year ago, listening to a podcast. And uh, that's when I really started studying into this, and it hopped onto the ketogenic diet myself. Yeah, I kind of had the same. I first heard about it in 2015 when my cousin, who was pretty overweight at the time and pretty metabolically unfit, he went on the ketogenic diet as a, an attempt to lose weight. And for some reason, it seemed like the 2010s were just plagued with all these fad diets, whether coconut oil was going to save the world or low fat or all these different diets and I, I kind of thought it was another it was another one of those and it was kind of concerning actually because he would tell me what he would eat and he said he's putting butter in his coffee in the morning and he can eat, eat ad libitum amounts of bacon and to my untrained mind that just seemed very unnatural but like you said when you learn the scientific rationale behind this it, it starts to kind of make sense. So can you go over for our listeners here, can you go into the physiology and the biochemistry of a ketogenic diet for us? Yeah, so this is going to be a very important thing to understand in order to fully comprehend all of the benefits that we're going to be talking about. You kind of need to have a little basis of the physiology. So when we talk about a ketogenic diet, the most important thing to understand is insulin. Now, insulin is a hormone. It's created and secreted by the pancreas in response to the presence of carbohydrates, um, most notably glucose, right? So you have to remember that the majority of the time that we've been on this earth as humans, it has been a state of low caloric availability. Our ancestors might have gone weeks at a time without grain or meat or vegetables, and that is how we, that is the evolutionary traits that we picked up. And so insulin is a, it does multiple things, but most importantly, I want you to think of it as a growth factor, okay? So when insulin is released into the bloodstream, it promotes uptake of glucose into cells 
that allows it to be used as energy or stored as muscle glycogen. It also does things like promote amino acid uptake so we could build muscle. But in general, it's telling the body, we have caloric substance, let's grow. And another thing that everybody is familiar with in the terms of insulin is how it holds on to fat. So with this in mind, the ketogenic diet, like you said, is one that restricts carbohydrates severely and it increases the amount of fats. Now, what the end result of that is, is a lower state of glucose in the body, but more importantly, a lower state of insulin. When we suppress the hormone insulin, we get an increase in mobilization of fat from fat cells, and they get oxidized. And a lot of the fat that is oxidized can immediately be used as energy, but long-chain fats can't pass the blood-brain barrier. And at the end of the day, everything our body is trying to do is preserve brain energy metabolism. So for glucose, when we have a constant feed of that, it's very easy to keep our brain fed. But with a low insulin state, our body has to produce these ketone bodies, which can be used to fuel the brain, heart, skeletal muscle, and other tissues. And most of the benefits that come from the ketogenic diet are from the suppression of insulin and then the addition of ketone bodies are just sort of a side effect, which also happen to have other beneficial properties. That was an amazing explanation of the physiology of ketosis. Um, interestingly enough, the liver and the red blood cells actually can't use ketones as fuel. Do you know why that is? So when we talk about ketosis, there's three ketone bodies that predominate in our body. The first of those, and probably the most important, is uh, acetoacetate. Okay, it looks very similar to acetyl-CoA, which is, as everybody knows, a very important step in the Krebs cycle. And acetoacetate can go one of two ways. The majority of it turns into a ketone body called beta-hydroxybutyrate, which lasts the longest in the body. It circulates, and it is the ketone body that is most likely to be used by the brain as a fuel source. However, some of it can spontaneously decarboxylate and turn into acetone and CO2. And I don't know about you, but before I even realized what was happening, when I first started ketosis, one of the first things I noticed was a gnarly taste on my breath. Did you get the same thing? I did. It tasted weird and I, it smelled funny all the time. Right. And for anybody that's worked in emergency medicine, you might remember that one of the characteristics of a patient in diabetic ketoacidosis is a very noticeable nail polish remover smelling breath. And that is because nail polish remover uses acetone as a solvent. And for patients experiencing this condition, they have unregulated amounts of beta oxidation of fat and unregulated ketone production. Now, I'd like to get into some of the various applications and benefits of the ketogenic diet, but it's important to keep in mind that we believe most modern diseases are either caused by or made worse by insulin resistance. And if one can restore insulin sensitivity and metabolic health, they can reverse or reduce the severity of things like heart disease and type 2 diabetes. 
In particular, I'd like to start off with type 2 diabetes because the emerging evidence and empirical data is so compelling. So Ryan, why don't you give us an overview of how the ketogenic diet could be used for patients with type 2 diabetes? So type 2 diabetes is an acquired disease process that is characterized by hyperinsulinemia. It's the diagnosis of too much insulin in the blood and you're insulin resistant. We talked about insulin resistance a little bit. So these GLUT4 transporters aren't being shuttled up into the cell membrane due to chronic hyperinsulinemia and chronic hyperglycemia. And so that'll lead you to a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. With a ketogenic diet, you're having decreased levels of carbohydrate intake, which decreases glucose intake at the end of the day, and you're going to have an insulin increase in insulin sensitivity and a lower amount of insulin release from the pancreas. And then this is actually a big one. Uh, so can you talk about the benefits of the ketogenic diet with our cancer patients here today? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it, but I kind of want to preface this part of the conversation by saying that evidence for metabolic cancer therapy is still lacking. However, I'm going to try to explain the rationale behind why so many physicians around the world are choosing to implement the ketogenic diet as a neoadjuvant therapy, meaning it's used in conjunction with treatments like chemotherapy and radiation to bolster their efficacy. So I think the best place to start is to explain the Warburg effect, which helps describe some of the interesting aspects of cancer metabolism. So when we have cells that need to make ATP from available glucose, they could basically choose one or two pathways. Usually cells tend to choose aerobic respiration, which involves the conversion of glucose to pyruvate and then acetyl-CoA, followed by a series of redox reactions in which oxygen is the final electron acceptor. Now, this pathway is preferred because it yields the most ATP per molecule of glucose, but we also have the capability to perform glycolysis, which yields far less ATP, but it has the benefit of not needing cellular oxygen. So the interesting thing about cancer cells that have a Warburg phenotype is that even in the presence of oxygen, they still prefer to create a majority of their energy from glycolysis instead of aerobic respiration. With this in mind, glucose and glutamine are the two fermentable fuels that cancer cells use to produce ATP. The former's already been explained, right? And the latter is an amino acid that is, comes from both dietary and endogenous sources. So when one implements a ketogenic diet, they're limiting the availability of these fermentable fuels to cancer cells, helping starve them in part. We also know that insulin stimulates cancer cell growth both in vitro and in vivo, and that the ketogenic diet is very efficacious in reducing circulating insulin levels. And I want all the listeners to keep their eye out for the emerging data that's coming out in this field because I think it's going to be very exciting. Now, these strategies have really been only in place for about 20 years, but the first clinical indication of a ketogenic diet was a treatment of pediatric epilepsy, and it's still used for that purpose today. So, Ryan, I was hoping you could walk us through your understanding of the ketogenic strategies in the context of our epileptic patients. Of course. Um, you already talked about some of the neurotransmitters earlier, the glutamate and the GABA, and so uh, epilepsy just being a CNS disorder where you have abnormal brain activity, abnormal neuronal firing in the brain. Um, and this happens because these 
neurons are ex- more excited. They're really, they're really excited. And so that's coming from glutamate, a ex- excitatory neurotransmitter. And so you can't have suppression of that without GABA. And the classic ketogenic diet with proper amount of ketones in the blood reduces the amount of glutamate in the brain and enhances the synthesis of GABA. This makes it less likely for seizures to occur. It also uh, decreases inflammation in the brain as well, so it can help with other neurological disorders such as a TBI. So, and the interesting thing about that is, if I'm correct, they actually use the ketogenic diet when drugs fail. Is that right? Correct, yeah. So this is usually for treatment-resistant epilepsy. However, personally, um, I'd rather try a diet modification rather than hop on some of these medications for treatment of epilepsy. Right, and I think that could be said for a lot of both acute and chronic diseases. Western medicine is very set on treating the symptom of a disease instead of treating the underlying cause. And a lot of the times, a lot of the drugs that we have, they act on protein channels, they modulate hormones maybe, but they don't get to the actual biochemical roots of a lot of these problems. Nowhere as near as something as diet and exercise can. So if somebody wants to implement the ketogenic diet in their life, they're going to have to make a significant lifestyle change. So can you just tell us when you first started, because you've been on the ketogenic diet for about five or six months now, can you tell us what are some of the issues or what did you run into when you first started the diet? And what what did you learn that you would like to share with other people that are maybe interested in starting the ketogenic diet? At first, I think the hardest thing for me, um, you have to really resist yourself from having those cravings you know, you have a decrease, you have a depletion of glycogen and you're going to be, those leptin and ghrelin levels are going to be circulating like crazy and you're going to really crave these fast food places. So that was kind of a difficult road to go over initially. Another issue I had was muscle cramps, especially in my legs and my calves at night. I would get gnarly, gnarly horses that I'd have to rub out at 2 a.m. Um, so the best thing for that was uh, electrolyte supplementation therapy. Uh, there's many things out there that you can supplement with, but I've used these keto sticks that have all the electrolytes needed for me to and stop the muscle cramps almost immediately. So one of the big problems for me is that I realize every time I tried to consume my protein shake, as I would after the gym, just whey protein, and I would consume it with unsweet almond milk, which has about one gram of carbohydrate. And the protein powder itself, it contained about 30, 35 grams of protein, but very minimal carbohydrate. I noticed every single time I took my big bolus of a protein shake, sure enough, I would be knocked out of ketosis. So can you explain why that is? Why, why is it that when I took this big bolus of protein, I was usually knocked out of ketosis? So that's the wonderful role of gluconeogenesis occurring in the liver. So we can have endogenous glucose production occurring in the liver from 
a number of molecules, namely lactic acid, we have glycerol, and then we have our most important amino acids, which is what you're getting from these protein shakes. Um, and that's from like alanine and glutamine being formed into glucose in the liver. And it really speaks to how important glucose homeostasis is in our body that even when we're consuming minimal amounts of carbohydrates, we're still able to produce a blood glucose level of probably, you know, we're probably sitting at 50, 60, maybe 70 or 80 milligrams per deciliter. And it really speaks to the importance of glucose. And I think it's important to, glucose is not the enemy. It is literally life's fuel source. Every single eukaryotic cell uses glucose as a fuel source. But the problem that we identify is the insulin resistance that comes with overconsumption of glucose. So, Ryan, I personally, I've only used uh, the sticks, but what are some ways that you know about that we can actually measure ketones? Because the interesting thing about this diet is it is, in my knowledge, unique in that we actually have a biomarker that you could test to make sure that you are adhering to the diet. So a lot of people get obsessed with testing their ketone levels. So how do you test your ketone levels? And what are some ways commercially available that we can test for these? So there's breath, breathalyzers, where you can test your ketones on your breath. There's blood, obviously, looking for ketones in the blood. And most famously, for the general population, you have ketone sticks. Um, I pee on one three times a day <laughs> just to keep an eye on where my ketone levels are and what's kicking me out of ketosis. And and these things are super cheap, like a buck fifty for a pack of 150 strips. And so that won't be ever be an issue for your consumers and non-invasive, right? So that's a, another important thing. I'm not over here sticking myself with a needle three times a day to get a measurement level of how deep into ketosis I am. When we're supplementing uh, exogenous ketones, most popularly MCT oil, uh, can you go in for our listeners about what it is, what kind of brand you use, and how it works in the body? So MCT oil, or medium-chain triglycerides, are smaller hydrocarbons, usually 8 to 10 carbons in length. And they are, instead of the most of the fats that we eat, are long-chain fatty acids, which have to be absorbed through lacteals and packaged into chylomicrons before entering lymphatic circulation. MCT oils, because of their length, they're basically already broken down. So they get absorbed hepatically, and they get sent to the liver, and the liver is forced to convert a lot of these directly into ketone bodies. And so using MCT oil, you can actually boost the amount of protein in your diet as long as you supplement with it. A lot of people, including me, and I know you, put it in their coffee and they really like it in the morning. It makes it for a nice treat. But you could also put it on things like salad dressing or you could just sprinkle it on any food that you want. Now, MCTs as a standalone molecule also have some beneficial properties. A lot of labs are looking at them as a role as functional fats and reducing seizures and also promoting brain energy metabolism. But they're very useful tools. I personally use Onnit. 
brand, but I know there's dozens of brands that sell these. It's very easily derived from coconut oil, and it's very easy to use. Another exogenous ketone that I'm really excited about are the salts. And when I first took these salts, I was just blown away about how good they tasted and how easy they were to mix with water. And so I actually don't use the salts. I'll get into what I use occasionally. But I know you use the salts. So what can you tell us about the salts? How do you use it? And what do they do to your ketone levels from what you've seen? I know the salts were cheaper option than the, the esters that I was seeing online. Uh, I'm not a millionaire by any means. And so these 30 packs of ketone salts for about 40 bucks. So I get an initial dose in the morning and I'll take about a half a, half a dose in the morning. I'll take another half a dose in the afternoon. Um, and I'll test my, my urine, excuse me, the first thing in the morning. And immediately I'll, I'll be around two millimoles and I'll track that throughout the day and energy level spike. I know my glucose might drop a little bit and I also measure those as well. Um, and I'm always sitting at around 70, no matter what. My blood glucose will never go above 90 a day in my life. I promise you that. So can you tell us a bit more about these ketone esters that I know that you're taking right now? Yeah, so in our exogenous world of ketones, we have basically three big ones. We've already mentioned two of them. The MCT oils, then we have the ketogenic electrolyte, but it's basically a molecule of beta-hydroxybutyrate ionically bound to either monovalent or divalent cations. So sodium, potassium, magnesium, and calcium, which we should have in our diet anyway. A lot of people undervalue the role of electrolytes, but it's something that should already be a part of everybody's diet. And so when we ionically bind these beta-hydroxybutyrate molecules to magnesium, potassium, sodium, you're getting very bioavailable electrolytes, and you're also sustaining moderate levels of ketones throughout the day. So it, it, it just helps you maintain that state of constant ketosis. As you mentioned, the other one that is popular, it's a bit more expensive, but I've used it quite frequently, are the ketone esters. And instead of an ionic bond, these are going to be covalently bound beta-hydroxybutyrate molecules to other complementary molecules, such as acetoacetate itself. But the one I use is bound to a substance called 1,3-butanediol, which is actually... It's very similar to a byproduct of bacterial metabolism called 2,3-butanediol, but it's interesting in that all of that substance consumed, it goes immediately to the liver, and it all has to get converted to beta-hydroxybutyrate. So not only are you getting the beta-hydroxybutyrate from the ester, but you're also getting more substrate from the 1,3-butanediol. And personally, I noticed that these give me a sustained energy level throughout the day that is unmatched by any other, any other substance I take, including caffeine. And it's, it's sustained. There's no crashes. It really makes me feel, it really makes me feel in tune. But the problem that I notice is as far as um, gym performance, it also drops my blood glucose pretty significantly. I think the lowest I got was 52 with them, and that felt gnarly. 
So interestingly enough, actually, can you go into this for us? So we have the few different ketones present in not only the exogenous ketones, but in endogenous production as well. We have the BHB, the acetoacetate, and then acetone. Can you go to one for our listeners what each of those is and why can't we use acetone for uh, energy production? So the carbons of acetone, some people find that they do find their way into energy production, but it's very rare. And acetone, it's usually a byproduct that our body wants to get rid of because at high doses, it's a solvent. And the same thing can happen to our lipid membrane, which is very dangerous and we don't want that. So acetone, it's produced in very low levels and it's usually never a problem, never a clinically significant problem for those on a ketogenic diet. It can become a problem for people with ketoacidosis, which is a much different thing. And that has to do with the fact that, like you said, insulin released by the pancreas because of hyperketonemia feeds back on the liver and turns down beta oxidation. Well, if you're a type 1 diabetic and you don't produce insulin, you, one, can't get glucose uptake into cells, so you rely on beta oxidation of fats. But then the second problem, is you don't have insulin to tell the liver to chill out on beta oxidation, and that gives you that ketoacidosis. But that's usually not a problem for most people. Now, acetoacetate, it's a little bit more unstable. So its transit time is not as, not as steady as something like beta-hydroxybutyrate, which can travel through the bloodstream and travel to the brain and other tissues. It's interesting, you, know, you said in the, on the outset that the liver and the red blood cells, I believe, can't use ketone bodies for energy. And that's because these various ketone bodies, they all enter the Krebs cycle through various pathways, but most importantly is, a, is an enzyme called succinyl-CoA transferase, which most of the tissues in our body, including our brain and skeletal muscles, they contain this enzyme. Interestingly, the liver does not contain succyl-CoA transferase. So the result of that is that the ketones that we produce are spared for the most important tissues. So you might be thinking, hey, I want to try out this ketogenic diet. It sounds like something that could be beneficial for my health. But like any big change in our life, there's usually a gamut of side effects. So why don't you kind of go into some of the side effects that you can expect when you're either first getting a ketogenic diet or long-term, um, whether that be just physical or lab values that might be changed. Initially, one of the biggest issues with the ketogenic diet is dehydration. Uh, you have an increased rate of beta oxidation and you have excretion of ketones. Um, and breakdown of glycogen in the muscles and attached to the glycogen you have large amounts of water and so this water is leaving the system and alongside it's going to be your your minerals right your your salts your sodium your potassium namely and so this will lead to muscle cramps like i was talking about earlier uh, another issue would be uh, issues with your cholesterol right so with Intaking large amounts of fats, we're going to have an increase in your LDL cholesterol, which is low-density lipoproteins, and that's your bad cholesterol. But you also have an increase in your HDL as well. Um, 
Am I missing anything here? That's pretty much the big the big problems I notice. A lot of people, when they start, they talk about the keto flu, and nine times out of ten, that's caused from dehydration and lack of electrolytes. And so insulin itself, like you said, promotes the reuptake of sodium. It promotes holding on to these electrolytes in addition to everything that comes with all the glycogen. And so when we're depleting ourselves of insulin, we are going to be peeing out a lot of electrolytes. We're going to be peeing out a lot of water. And it's very important when you're first starting the ketogenic diet to increase the amount of sodium, potassium, and magnesium that you're consuming by a lot. I mean, I'm talking you should be really adding a lot of salt to the foods that you're eating. A lot of people don't realize this, but one of the biggest problems with processed food is that they contain naturally large amounts of sodium. And it's very hard to maintain a ketogenic diet when you're consuming processed food. So most likely people are going to be buying whole foods from the store and cooking them at home, which is why it is safe and important to add a lot of salt to it. You're going to need that sodium for muscle performance and for basically for everything. Sodium is such an important, all these electrolytes play very important roles in our body. You mentioned LDL cholesterol increase. That is, very, that is noticeable, and that is something that pretty much everybody will see with their lab values. And LDL cholesterol, there's a little bit more nuance now in the field that people are realizing. And a lot of doctors are immediately going to a test called ApoB100, which counts the amount of LDL particles rather than the weight. Because when you go to the doctor right now and you get your LDL checked, it's a basically, it's a almost like a density metric where it's milligrams per deciliter. And the basically the weight over volume doesn't tell you much about your risk for atherogenic disease, but the number of particles of those low-density lipoproteins, that will definitely infer a higher risk. And so what a lot of people find on the ketogenic diet is that their LDL cholesterol total weight over volume increases, but the actual number of those atherogenic particles will decrease. And like you said, it also raises HDL cholesterol, which across the board is beneficial for heart health. And the other thing that it does is it lowers triglycerides, which triglycerides has gone back and forth over the years and how risky it is. But in general, for everybody, directionally lowering them is going to be beneficial. And the ketogenic diet also contributes to that. So let's just talk about a little bit about implementation. So if we want to get started with this, what? just give us an example, Ryan. What does your diet look like on a day-to-day -day basis with the ketogenic diet? Just to walk you through, uh, every morning, I'll, three to four eggs, three to four pieces of bacon. Um, and usually I'll push that back a little bit actually, right? So that's usually around lunchtime. I'll, I implement int intermittent fasting into my lifestyle as well. So I'll eat my first meal of the day around noon. And that'll be about three eggs, a couple strips of bacon. And then for my second and last meal of the day, of course, there's a protein shake right in the middle. Uh, for snacks, you can do usually nuts. I like to do almonds. Uh, and for dinner, it's usually large portions of chicken with MCT oil on my salads and some fruits like spinach and tomatoes, mainly named in my diet. Um, and so this is 
I think the ketogenic diet is great in the short term and especially if you have the drive to maintain it, right? So it's all about personal drive to maintain this diet. And so it's easy to fall into the traditional American diet and just let yourself falter. And I think that's where a lot of these studies have come halted short. And so there's no long-term evidence uh, to support the ketogenic diet yet, but there's a lot of positive studies on these short-term. Is that true you've seen as well or? And I think the problem is we take a lot of, if we just look at a lab test, okay, if we, if you go to the doctor and you get your liver enzymes checked and they draw an ALT, an AST, and they get a printout and they look at your name, they look at your numbers, and then they look at the reference range. So anybody that's worked in medicine knows exactly what a reference range is, and it'll show you the low end and high end of what is considered normal. And this is a big problem that we keep running into, especially the American medical institution, is that if you look over the years, the reference ranges are changing. Now, for some of them, that contributes to new evidence that says this number is safer than this number. But a lot of the time, what they do to get that reference number is they take the they take everybody they take the mean and they take two standard deviations above and below the mean. Well, the problem is over the last 50 years, we see this huge increase in chronic diseases from these typical sad the sad right standard American diet, and people are becoming more unhealthy. So it's not the physiologic numbers that have changed. It's the amount of unhealthy people that have changed. So it's very important when you talk about these labs to take it into context and that even if you are only in a ketogenic diet 10 days out of the month, even five days out of the month, you're already going to be doing strides for your health way beyond that of most Americans and the food that they're consuming. And I'm going to go ahead and quote myself here. I think I said this to you a couple months ago. The standard American diet should make you sick, should make you nauseous and vile what we're putting into our bodies on a daily basis. And what you just see your, your coworkers even just shoving into their faces every single day of their lives. And after maintaining this diet for five, six months now, um, it really does change your your perspective on what we really do put in our bodies and what we just view as okay, right? It's okay to have a soda with lunch, which has a whopping like 60 grams, 60 grams of sugar, which will immediately kick you out of ketosis. And I wouldn't even dare, I wouldn't even dare take a sip of one anymore. It really spills into other areas of your life as far as the determination and motivation to just follow a generally healthy lifestyle, which is this is what we promote at Function Health is a better and healthier lifestyle. Another thing I wanted to get into real quick is, I mean, you're you're a pretty muscular guy. Anybody that's seen you know that you're a pretty big dude. I'm I'm working my way up there slowly but surely. But what have you noticed as far as because you can obviously continue to go to the gym throughout this? What have you noticed from both a let's say, a muscle standpoint as far as weightlifting, and then also from a cardioaerobic standpoint, how have those two factors changed since you started the ketogenic diet? I think my goals have actually changed since starting the ketogenic diet. Uh, just my whole 
mentality uh, going towards instead of just getting as big as humanly possible. I was sitting around 250 pounds, probably around 30% body fat, 35% body fat if I'm stretching it. And I was a strong, I was a strong boy. Let me tell you, um, I was benching upwards of what was I hitting like 330 pounds, three, almost 350 at one point. And it's absolutely gnarly. But since implementing the ketogenic diet into my life, I've noticed, especially when you jump back into it initially, this is more prominent. You have uh, muscle fatigue occurring quicker. So you can't hit as many reps in that set or not as many sets in that exercise, right? And so that's kind of an issue. And you're going to have some catabolic effects initially. But I think as far as from a study of one here and N of one, uh, I've maintained a decent amount of my muscle mass. Sure, I'm not benching 350 pounds anymore. Um, but I'm too, I just weighed myself today. I'm 223 pounds. I've dropped an astounding amount of fat on my body and I've, I can run farther. I can bike farther. I'm always on the bike. I'm going to bike for, what did I do today? I did I think eight miles on the bike and I ran a mile and a half without an issue, which I'd be huffing and puffing six months ago. Let me tell you, since getting out of the military. Um, what about you? I kind of had some of the same, I had an initial, like you said, detrimental effect in as far as weightlifting, but eventually it just goes away. Our bodies are very adaptable and we can fat adapt very quickly. There's actually, like you said, you maintain a lot of muscle mass. You might not maintain all of it, but a lot of people worry that when they hop on the ketogenic diet, they're going to lose a lot of fat and a lot of muscle. But if you think about it, one of the things that amino acids do on a normal basis is maintain glucose homeostasis through gluconeogenesis, which we talked about. So you mentioned another very important point earlier, which was that glycerol can also be used to drive gluconeogenesis. So when we're on a ketogenic diet, we are sending a bunch of triglycerides to the liver all the time. That's basically how we get fats over to the liver so that they can be oxidized. So we cleave off those three fatty acid backbones, and we use those for energy, and we use those for ketones. But we don't throw away that glycerol. Instead, we use that glycerol to create glucose for, through gluconeogenesis. So in that way, you don't need to break down as many amino acids to maintain glucose homeostasis, which is incredible. And the other thing is you said you were able to run a lot longer and bike a lot longer. So they're actually the transporter that helps ketones get into the cells are monocarboxylic transporters, which frustratingly enough are also labeled MCT, not to be confused with the oil. So these transporters, they transport molecules that have a single carboxylic acid group. Now, what other molecule besides ketones has a single carboxylic acid group? Lactate. So, lactate, as anybody knows that has ran over a mile, it could build up a lot. It, could, it, it is a great conjugate base for acids, and you get lactic acidosis, which is toxic to muscles and very painful. But if you have an upregulation of monocarboxylic transporters, you can actually use that lactate and use it as energy for the heart, skeletal muscles, and brain. 
So instead of letting all that lactate go to waste and get hydrogen ions and become lactic acid, you can actually use it. So you don't get as much pain after running a lot longer, and your recovery times are a lot quicker. So I think we gave a pretty good overview of the ketogenic diet. Of course, there's so much literature out there. I would say just like any medical literature, take it with a grain of salt. Look who's funding it. Look what the methodology is, because for the big food industry and for big pharma, something like the ketogenic diet that can promote all these health benefits, it is detrimental to their pocket. And unfortunately, the medical establishment in America is fueled by money. So just keep that in mind as you read these and come to your own conclusions. Would you like to add anything else about the ketogenic diet or just health and wellness in general? Like you said earlier, do your own research. Don't take what we say or don't what don't take what the first thing you see off the internet is factual truth. Do your own research. Medicine is an art, not a complete science. And that's why we're having these reference ranges change all the time. You know, A1C of 6.0, now 6.5 is type 2 diabetes. Uh, do your own research. Formulate your own scientific opinion and keep on learning. So as always, thank you for joining us on the Function Health Podcast, and we can't wait to see you next time.